Welcome back to the 125th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including is AI going to destroy the fundamentals of the stock market, how Nike is dealing with a change of their dynamics, and how they're trying to get through it, and a interesting article in the end that talks about how we should not be giving more money to the Pentagon. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, Obviously, I talked about AI being disruptive to the stock market, or at least we'll be talking about that. But how disruptive do you think AI is going to be in your given industry, in your given job? Will it spur innovation? Will it create new jobs? Will it crush old ones? Or will it cause instability? Let me know what you think, and if you could specify what industry you work in, throw it down in the comment section. I'm curious to hear people's opinions, and maybe there's an industry I didn't even think of that AI is somehow negatively or positively affecting. All right, let's jump to the first article, which comes from DW. AI, are stock markets ready for it? So if you don't know, a lot of trading, the micro trading, the smaller transactions, are already done by AI programs. They are constantly assessing news information and they are trading and or executing these trades extremely, extremely quickly, trying to make a quick buck. And this is not necessarily uncommon throughout all of the stock market. Now, it's not where you're going to find a lot of AIs doing long plays and long trades. They're not going to sit there and try to extrapolate into the future because one, they could try, but, you know, everything's unpredictable for the most part. They could look at all the different factors that lead into different decisions, but that doesn't mean that they'll be able to predict a random explosion in Africa or a war breaking out between Ukraine and Russia five years down the road. So they're not used as much for long-term plays. But for short-term plays, they can assess, okay, hey, this just dropped by... 10%, we think this factor is playing into it, and we could probably hold it for the day and make a little bit of money, or even buying one minute and selling the next. It could even be within seconds just to make maybe 10 or 5 cents per share. Imagine doing that with 1,000 shares. You're raking in a little bit of money. So these AI algorithms have been prolific throughout the industry. But AI, some people are a little skeptical, and They're kind of seeing it as a way that could be very disruptive within the financial sector, and it could remove some need for human analysts if an AI system is good enough at taking in a whole bunch of different information and spitting out a report. Right now, it can already do that. It can spit out a report like ChatGPT. So imagine it now has the analytical power, the historical knowledge that all these traders do, and then is also integrated into an LLM, a large language model, and it can spit out reports that are common sense, easy for everybody to understand. That could get rid of a lot of analyst jobs. They could literally, they could probably on Robinhood automate the hold buy sell indications, which tell you when you should hold buy or sell a share. 
They could probably outsource that to an AI program that looks at the historical data and then just changes that indicator and to what percent they believe that you should hold, buy, or sell, and then spit it out on their website. You may not even need analysts anymore to do that work independently. So you could see how this would be a little disruptive, how this technology could get rid of some jobs that have been very important over the years. So let's go straight to it. Well, straight. At this point, it's a little bit further in. I ranted a little bit longer than I thought I would, but let's go to a quote from the article. Quote, on one Monday morning in May, U.S. financial markets took a sudden dip. A photo of an explosion at the Pentagon near Washington, D.C. is spreading on social media and spilling over onto popular investment websites. Was it an attack? Investors seem to think so. Stocks tend to perform poorly in the early stages of internal international conflict. The S&P 500 declined 0.3%, a session low, and safe havens like gold and treasury bonds started to climb. But while a couple of hours later, everything had turned to normal. The image was fake, it turned out, likely generated by an artificial intelligence, experts say. But the flash of investor panic raises questions about what AI means for market stability with fake images becoming more realistic and even easier to make, end quote. And this is the angle that I didn't take at the beginning because this is not just AI within the financial sector, but how AI can affect the financial sector from the outside, which is very, very scary because think about some of the AI images that you've seen. Maybe, I believe it was Trump hugging Fauci came out from DeSantis. Some of them look convincing. Some of them look like fakes. Or the one that really caught the world by storm, which was the Pope one that went around on Twitter. And obviously this one, which sent a whole bunch of news across Twitter. And everybody was kind of concerned there for a little bit. So these AI image generators are becoming really, really good at making things that look real. And then, of course, you have LLMs, which are able to output a very well-worded, very elegant statement. Imagine someone says, oh, I wanted to create a statement about how the U.S. is going to war with X country. And then it looks at the past data. It's like, okay, this is how it's gone in the past. Very elegant. Seems very official. And then somebody dresses it up with an official letter heading or a bill number so that it appears that it is a bill that's being proposed in Congress or even any way that they can try to implement this. Imagine situations like this come out and then the investors who are still human investors are looking at it like, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. We're going to war with this country. Okay, get all of our assets out of that country. If we have any bonds for any companies or the government of that country, no, we need to get out of there extremely quickly. Or inversely, oh no, we need to get out of U.S. bonds right now. We need to see how this first week plays out, if we steamroll them or if we're going to be in a long conflict. So you can see how a whole bunch of AI systems that are very good at creating or piecing together different pieces of information, images, into something that appears new and could be shocking in nature, you see how powerful that could be. And when you have AI systems that are creating these things, and then also AI systems that are working on these different premises within the financial sector who are analyzing Twitter and seeing, oh, wow, this photo is trending right now. And if it's able to truly understand the context, or even if it can just read the language underneath it, which is people asking if the Pentagon's been attacked, then it may make a hasty decision about 
maybe getting out of different U.S. securities or getting out of different companies that could have been near the Pentagon or would face backlash during a time. I mean, like, think about it this way. If there's a security company that the Pentagon contracts with that is publicly traded and the Pentagon was on fire, then obviously that security company didn't do their job well enough. And then the AI would say, okay, hey, no, we need to short their stock right now because it's going down because of this attack on the Pentagon. So you can see how this could be a perpetuating loop because then AI systems, the ones that are doing the short-term trades, some of them will be programmed to get out of positions when there's a large loss and other ones will be programmed to step in. So there's a potential here that a lot of these AI systems are like, oh no, this is tanking too fast. Get all of our assets out of there and it can cause the loop to keep going down. But there is one redeeming factor, which is these AI systems could also say, well, this is an opportunity to exploit. So then once it hits a certain low, it hits $30 per share, all the AI systems that are programmed to make money are like, oh, okay, hey, this is an opportunity because we know this company has good fundamentals, but we know that it's just slumping right now. So we're going to buy in at 30 So while it could cause a loop downwards, it is also a protection against a runaway spiral because these programs are trying to make money and if the company does have good fundamentals or there's other factors that make it look a little bit more strong than the price would indicate these ai systems are going to jump on that and try to prevent it from going to lower by buying shares at a lower price in order to make more money when they sell it so you know there's back and forth and obviously i've given you a lot of the pessimistic view but there is a optimistic view of all of this situation within the financial market and the power of AI. And it comes from the article. Quote, but Nir Vulcan, a professor of business economics at the University of Oxford, says this kind of trading behavior is nothing new. Markets have always reacted to rumors and misinformation, but they usually correct once the truth comes out. With Quote, with the internet and everything being connected, it happens faster and maybe stronger, he told DW, but it does correct. Unlike Kibise, he's not convinced that algorithmic trading would be the main cause of volatility in response to the spread of fake images. The reason? Low frequency of algorithmic trading, while high frequency trades are held for just seconds, low frequency trading will hold positions much longer, maybe weeks. It's the latter that is favored by hedge funds, since high-frequency trading algorithms are taking advantages of very short-term opportunities. The amount of capital available for them is much smaller than in low-frequency trading. Quote, the big money is almost all in low-frequency, said Vulcan. So, and he has a great point here, which is, as I was explaining earlier, these systems are taking advantage of really minute small changes in stock prices in order to capitalize. But that also means that they don't have as much capital at their disposal. So then you look at hedge funds, which are obviously some of the largest funds, and you say, what are they using? One, they're using algorithms that are more safe. They're making longer plays that look at more information than just the current price and where the price could be within the next minute or at the end of the day. And they're able to throw more capital behind it because of their hedge fund status but also because they perceive their plays to be less risky. So it's a nice thing to have a little bit of an optimistic view here. And I most definitely agree that 
the AI systems that are not trading as frequently are going to have less risk. That is an obvious, that is apparent to anybody that heard that statement. But also, if an AI is meant to look for a long-term outcome, that doesn't necessarily stop them from not investing or taking money out of a company. So just because they are looking two weeks down the road, that doesn't mean that fake images that come out and a narrative that persists could very well make them stop investing in that company. Now, let's be clear. It's not these fake images may be corrected within two days, three days, within a week. But what if that narrative lasts almost all day and an AI keeps seeing news about it and finally hits a threshold where it's like, okay, we need to get out of these companies now. Now, of course, let's be clear, that is very unlikely. As the article points out, the fake Pentagon images were cleaned up, or at least the narrative was cleaned up within three hours or so. And because of the internet, we are connected, so all the disproving of this type of mal-created or, I don't want to say malicious, but these AI images that are fake, the dispersion of the fact that they are fake is faster because we're all on the internet. But that doesn't mean that a narrative can't persist long enough that these still these long-term algorithms could very well decide that they need to get out of a position. So Wally makes a great point. There are, of course, cases where it would not be the exact same situation, and therefore it could also hurt the stock market to have these big hedge funds have their algorithms pull out of positions that are affected by these negative images. But that's just me being a little bit of a pessimist. More realistically, it's me trying to point out that it doesn't always, it isn't always going to be roses and sunshine with AI. But also I do like Vulcan's perspective because it shows that it doesn't always have to be a horrible dystopian future with AI either. There's a balance here. And it also understands that at the end of the day, AI is a tool. If we use it properly and not irresponsibly, then it can turn out beautifully. Nothing is just inherently evil or inherently good on its own. It's how we use it. But that's enough on that article. Let's jump to our second one that comes from the Wall Street Journal. Nike broke up with retailers. Now they are trying to win them back. And I do love this headline because it really does emphasize the love-hate, the back-and-forth relationship between Nike and retailers. As you know, Nike, one of the most famous, the most loved brands when it comes to sportswear in the United States, along with their competitors, Adidas, have really pushed for a more online or using their app kind of purchase strategy. So they have their apps that they've released. They also have their premium sneaker release apps. I believe for Adidas, it's Originals. And for Nike, the article highlights it as Sneakers, S-N-K-R, I believe. So you've seen them really push to go online or Nike, like Nike does, have its own stores where it sells a lot of its products. So it doesn't necessarily want to go to retailers and have to pay them a little bit of a fee, basically like, okay, we'll send you a thousand shirts and you'll hold on to them. And because we understand that you have inventory costs, we'll sell them at a 5%, 10% discount to you. So then you can sell them and give the revenue 
back to us. Or you could just, you know, outright buy them and we'll sell them at a discount. And then you take on the risk of holding them in your shop for too long. Nike's like, well, why would I go to a retailer when I can sell it directly to the customer? And then I'm the one paying for the inventory costs. But I'm also not having to sell a large bulk of my product at such a large discount. And, you know, that does sound like a great alternative, especially with the age of the Internet, where you can go straight into somebody's house with advertisements or they can go straight onto your website from their couch and order your products. And you're already going to be paying inventory costs to keep your products in a warehouse before you would ship them off to the retailers anyway. So now you're just cutting down and saying, okay, hey, we don't have to pay that discount or we don't have to discount this product in order to move it. We can sell it directly to the customer or we can send it to our own stores. And that was a big push that we saw from Nike and Adidas. But now after COVID, where everything transitioned online and Nike went even harder into it, there's been a little bit of a shift in the market. So let's jump to what the article says. Quote, Nike broke up with retail partners to sell more of its products directly to consumers. Now it's going back to some of those same retailers. Seeking help to clean out its inventory. DSW parent designer brands on Thursday said it would begin carrying a wide assortment of Nike products later this year. Macy's said earlier this month that Nike apparel, bags, and gear would return to its department stores in October. Both retailers had deals with to sell Nike products and characterized the latest agreements as expansions of their relationship. Quote, they've been great partners, said designer brands chief executive Doug Howe about Nike on a conference call with analysts. Quote, we've been in an ongoing dialogue for the past several months. And we're super excited to be able to bring that back across women's, men's, and kids' clothing, end quote. End quote. And, you know, of course, it's very interesting to see these executives, I don't want to say schmoozing, because obviously it is the CEO's job to make good, strong, faithful comments to their partners and the people that provide them their clothing. They obviously want to ensure that they're showing enough gratitude when talking about it. But Nike tried to screw you over. Nike tried to say, oh, no, no, we don't need you anymore. We can sell directly to the customer. We can open our own stores. We don't have to rely on you retailers. We're going to be pulling back. And then now that they're deciding to come back to the retailers, the CEO is like, oh, we're happy to have you. He's a very gracious person. And obviously, he doesn't have much of a choice because Nike's a huge brand. And, of course, you want Nike in your stores because kids want Nike uh, young teens want Nike, even adults want Nike. So he doesn't have much of an option. But if I was in his situation in the back rooms, I'd be like, God, these, oh, these Nike guys, they tried to screw us over, but hey, we need their money, so we're going to be nice to them in the conference call. So, you know, it's interesting to see. But I did think it was very intriguing because I went to a local Belk the other day, and they don't have Nike clothing, or at least for a long time they didn't. They had champion they had columbia the normal sort of brands that you see in these retail stores and one of the ladies said oh yeah we'll be having nike back in here soon and i was thinking to myself oh okay good good for them they're having nike products and then i read this article I'm like okay this makes sense i understand why nike's trying to get back into the retail stores and try to be an every man's brand again and not be as fancy or 
really complete their transformation to, hey, you have to come to us on our website or one of our stores. They're finally saying, okay, no, we need to be in more households. We need to make sure that we're in front of a whole bunch of eyeballs, so we're going to go back into the retail stores. So that's the shift that really took place. But the question is, why have all these shifts taken place? Why did they want to go straight to the customer? And then also, why did they return to retail stores? Quote, Nike thought they could do a lot of this by themselves, but they aren't as capable as they thought they were, said Sam Poser, an equities analyst at Williams Trading. Investing in its stores, building shopping apps, and narrowing its retail partnerships was an element of Nike's strategy to win over modern shoppers and boost profit margins. In mid-2020, the company introduced a strategy called One Nike Marketplace, which focused on working with retail partners that could deliver customer experiences in-store and online similar to what Nike offered. Analysts said Nike executives wanted to move away from the types of poor product displays and customer experiences that shoppers had at some department stores and discount stores. Quote, consumers want a seamless digital and physical experience, end quote. Nike CEO John Donahue said in September 2020, quote, the North American retail market today is the furthest away from that, end quote. And, you know, I understand what he's going for here, but I think this is more of a PR spin. No, they don't. No, they really don't. Maybe your diehard Nike fans want that, but no. If I go in, and let's be clear, I don't buy Nike products anymore, but if I went into Belk and there was a Nike product that I liked, I don't, I don't care what the display is. Maybe subconsciously I do. Maybe I, there's some element of myself that I don't truly understand. But if I want a pair of shorts that have certain colors or they have certain characteristics, I will look at the Nike ones. I will look at the champion ones. If I like the Nike ones more, I will buy it. It's not about having a seamless experience between the app, my other stores, and the retailer. No, I don't care. I don't care. I want or need a product. I'm going to find a place that has it, and I am going to buy it. I'm not trying to go to a retail store and say, oh, well, hey, this is not exactly how Nike would display it, or this is not exactly the Nike way. And since it's not the Nike way, I I just really can't commit to buying it. Now, if I need shorts, if I need running shorts, and they have running shorts, I'm going to buy the running shorts. So I, I don't necessarily agree with the way they framed it. Now, do I agree that when it comes to online sales that people want a seamless and similar way of interacting? Sure, I could see that because if you're going to a website and then you go on their app and they're completely two completely different ways of navigating to find the different products that you want, that could be frustrating. It feels like there's not a continuity of services there. But when it comes to going into a retail store, no, I don't I don't think that's necessary. They're completely different experiences. Now, maybe they, Nike would argue that they want the stores to be set up a similar way to their Nike shops so that they're presented with certain outfit combinations. I, maybe you could argue that is worthwhile, but I think that's more for the company side than it is for the person side because if a person likes a certain product, no matter how it's displayed or whatever little outfit they put together on one of those dolls they're probably going to buy the product. And if they don't like the outfit, they're not going to buy the product. But that's probably because they don't like the elements of the outfit, not just that it's an outfit that Nike decided to put on display and they didn't like it as it was. So like I said, I feel like that was a cop-out strategy or a cop-out comment to really say, 
hey, no, we just don't want to work with retailers anymore. We want to have more control over our supply chains, and we want to keep more of the money for ourselves and make sure that our margins are better. And he just had a really creative way of getting there. But, you know, sometimes you have to really cut through this corporate speak and get down to the root of it. So Nike's coming back to its old girlfriend. It's begging on its knees. And how does that one song go? I'll have you begging on your knees for me. Whoa. Was that Victoria Justice? I don't know. I feel I feel old. I don't remember who uh, did that song. But that's besides the point. So we'll see how Nike and their new retailer uh, combination workout going here into the future here. If there's another pandemic, they may shift again. But right now, it seems that they really need those retailers. So let's jump to our last article. It's going to be a quick one because it's a narrative that you have heard before but has become ever more important with the debt ceiling discussion that we just had. And this article comes from Common Dreams. Congress, there is no reason to add funds to the Pentagon budget. Very bold, straightforward headline. So why are they saying this? Well, a lot of the debt ceiling negotiations was over non-essential spending or non-discrepancy discretionary, sorry, I used the wrong word there, discretionary spending. So they're not touching Social Security and Medicare. And another stipulation was they're not going to touch military spending. So when it comes to cuts, they're looking at a very small percentage of different programs like, oh, the SNAP program and things of this nature. So Common Dreams is like, hey, 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 we're cutting some of these other programs when we could be cutting the military funding. And I think they do have a very interesting argument as to why we should cut the military spending, or at least one justification for doing so. I don't necessarily agree overall because we need to reinvigorate the industrial industries around building military technology in order to really ramp up production in case anything happens with China here coming in the future. And yes, some people may be listening like, Alex, that is a warmonger stance, but the thing about it is the reason that we were able to come into World War II, World War One and World War II in a strong position is because we had a strong industrial base behind the military complex, and we were able to very quickly ramp up, even though it took years. In relative terms, we were able to quickly ramp up production and put a whole bunch of new ships out on the water after Pearl Harbor, we were able to build a whole bunch of new armaments to send to the British and the French during World War II, and we were able to really help the war effort because of our industrial base. And it's not that we've lost that, it's just that we have not necessarily kept it up to its highest standards. I mean, if you look at China, China has the largest navy in the world now. Now, is it the top-class best ships ever? No, but they've built out the industrial infrastructure building different battleships, and now they can use the infrastructure they have to upscale and build larger and better ships. And we don't have that same process anymore. I believe our dockyards or our navy yards that we have in the United States is down to, it's below 10, I believe. I was reading an article about it the other day. And if we have to ramp up for a war that we're supporting Taiwan versus China, then we need to be able to ramp up production like we did back in the day in order to get involved or at least send armaments, especially when it comes to our Navy. Because though our Navy 
is absolutely phenomenal. China is a land-based country attacking, if they attack Taiwan, an island that is a hundred times closer to to them than we are to Taiwan. And the Chinese mainland is about a tenth the distance away from Taiwan that our closest bases in Guam are. And from there, they can launch different missiles that could hit our battleships, our aircraft carriers in the water trying to defend Taiwan. So I feel like we're at a you know geographical or strategical disadvantage when basically playing on China's home turf. So we need to have the infrastructure in place because we are definitely going to have some down military craft. Because remember, China has hypersonic missiles that is very hard for us to hit even with anti-aircraft or anti-ballistic missile weapons that we may have aboard these ships or we may have different deployment techniques to like maybe there's a mobile iron dome per se and it could shoot down some of these missiles that China would send our way imagine that they send a hypersonic missile our way and you know we can't really defend against that at this point so we need to have robust infrastructure in place at least because maybe it doesn't actually get used for purely military purposes but I think the spending from the Pentagon should go towards building out that infrastructure rather than helpless bureaucracy spending, which is what they're doing right now. And that's where I do agree with the common dream author, which is maybe we need to retool the spending, not necessarily get rid of it, but retool where it's being used so we're using it more efficiently. So I'll read you one quote from the article, and I don't want to get too heavy into it because you've heard this narrative a lot of times before, but I did think it was an interesting conversation especially after reading an article highlighting how we are not prepared for a war at sea where we're actually fighting close to China. And it kind of altered my perspective a little bit. Normally, I'm a little bit less antagonistic, a little less pro-war because I don't want to sacrifice American lives for other countries. But Taiwan's one of my big exceptions, one because of its geopolitical uh, location, but also because of the chip industry that is spurring a lot of the innovation that we do here in the United States. We're very heavily reliant on their chips, and if those fall, their fabs fall into the hands of our greatest geopolitical enemy, who is already trying to build out the chip infrastructure and already has a large stranglehold on cheap chips, then we're even more at their mercy. And I, I really stand tall over Taiwan. The Ukraine and Russia incident is a little bit more tricky, but I stand very tall on Taiwan. And that's where I would say my my Warhawk comes out a little bit more. So let's read you this one quote before we move on to our daily delight. Quote, the Biden administration requested $886 billion for national defense for fiscal year 2024, a sum far higher in real terms than the peaks of the Korean or Vietnam wars or at the height of the Cold War. That figure could go even higher under the terms of the debt ceiling deal reached by President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. As hawks in Congress push for emergency packages that could not only provide aid needed to defend Ukraine, but also tens of billions of dollars in additional funding for Pentagon's regular budget. This is a terrible idea. There is no reason to add funds to the Pentagon budget, a docu- as documented in a report released Thursday by the Quincy Institute. And, you know, they're just saying, hey, we don't need to give extra money. They also point out that a lot of money comes into 
the congressional members' pockets from lobbying groups. And that's a, a interesting power dynamic that isn't necessarily the best for the American people when our tax dollars are going to useless military spending. Now, R&D, useful spending. When it comes to building out actual equipment, useful spending. Spending on bureaucrats who sit there and just file paperwork all day, useless spending. So I can agree. Maybe we don't have to put so much money into the budget or if we do put money into the budget, it needs to be allocated in a way that's actually effective and efficient and makes them operate more like a private company than a wing of the bloated government that they are. That's just my opinion on that one. Maybe it's standard talking points. Maybe you agree. Maybe you don't. Throw your comments down in the comment section. I'd love to have a conversation about it. All right, let's roll into our daily delight. This one comes from Mirror. Dog owner in stitches over photo delivery driver left of proof of package. And you can tell this is a British article when they say that the owner was left in stitches. That means they were laughing their butt off, basically. And sometimes you you can't take the delivery. You're at work, you're out getting groceries, and they just have to leave it there. But that's why you leave your dog in charge of making sure everything goes smoothly. Quote, Missing a parcel delivery is annoying, especially when you've been camping out at your front door for weeks waiting for its arrival. But one dog owner got a good laugh after reviewing their proof of postage status to see their ferocious pooch take in their delivery. And, you know, I hope that one day I have a dog who is as diligent and passionate as this one. Quote, the delivery person made sure to include my dog in the proof of delivery picture. Such ferocity. In the image, the white dog is seen barking at the delivery driver with a parcel at its feet. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of this little guy, or you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can access all of them, along with the links down there to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I'm posting Twitter tirades. They are Twitter exclusive comment content on Tuesday and Thursday. It's more of a rant. It's less formal. I don't have quotes from an article. It's just things I've been thinking about or comments on books that I've been reading or how you can integrate some of the conversations great authors are having about America and the current culture. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Say it with me now. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>